This episode of Vision of Sound is in collaboration with the Carvery Studio. The award-winning Carvery have recently relaunched their website to share stories of craft and creativity driven by music. I first met Frank Merritt, who owns the Carvery, in 2014 when I photographed him and his old boxer dog Roy for a feature about London's mastering houses. Six years on, and it's great to be collaborating with the Carvery again for this very special episode of Vision of Sound. Today we hear from photographer and director B+, also known as Brian Cross. For nearly 30 years, B's camera has captured artists like Snoop Dogg, Biggie, Erica Badu, Fugees, Quantic and Damien Marley. Many of the artists he's portrayed were in the early days of their career in New York and LA, where B now resides. He's the author of two books, including The Brilliant Ghost Notes, Music of the Unplayed, and is a professor at University of California, San Diego. Along with Eric Coleman, B is the founder of Mulchilla, a company making brand campaigns, mixed CDs, documentaries like Banksy's Exit Through the Gift Shop and over 100 record sleeves. B shares some stories about the making of some of his photos and record sleeves, including Blazing Arrow by Black Alicious and Company Flow's Little Johnny from the Hospital. A photographer driven by the connections between things, people and places, B Plus is an incredibly inspiring artist and thinker and I'm super excited to be sharing our conversation with you today. Check out thecarverystudio.com for a written article by me about B Plus alongside some of his amazing images. I've been reading loads about you and your work, which is amazing, by the way. Oh, thank I'm you. super inspired. I'm quite interested in access. I've always found cameras to be both a key to something and a barrier because music, for example, you would normally hear music for your ears, but when you've got a camera, then you're focusing on your sight. And also it can be a barrier in the sense that people react to you differently when you've got a camera. What was your access into LA hip hop community? So, I mean, I came here as a grad student. I mean, I came here first in 1988, like on a J1 visa and was a proper hip hop head. But of course, never thought that that would somehow be, you know, something that would I would spend the rest of my life thinking about or whatever. And then I came back to go to grad school. And really, it was when I was at grad school, really, that I was sort of challenged by a professor who had noticed how much time I spent thinking about um, like hip hop or the relationship of hip hop to sort of, you know, grassroots or working class politics in LA or whatever and just challenged me why don't you make a photo essay about it and I I was kind of I was just like nah like I'm not the right person or you know this is this is clearly not me but then once I started to do a little bit of work I realized actually you know the fact that I am an outsider the fact that I'm a proper fanatic you know in, in the old school sense of being like an advocate or whatever makes me sort of have a kind of unique perspective or whatever. I don't know if it made me uniquely qualified, but I did have a unique perspective and nobody was really taking it that serious in LA at that time, which is like uh, the summer of 91. You know, hip hop at that time, it was kind of like, yeah, we have the kind of gangster variant out here, but we don't really have, uh, you know, the, the culture, so to speak, is all New York. And I never really believed that, but uh, out here, that was a fairly common sort of misapprehension at that time. So, yeah, so I just started going places with my camera. I was a landscape photographer, actually, in Ireland. You know, I didn't even photograph people. Right. And so at first it was very challenging. The funny thing about cameras is, yes, absolutely true, that they are very often a barrier between you and the experience. 
but also in my case, for somebody who's kind of like challenged by a certain amount of social anxiety, it also gives you a very good reason to be in the room. <laughs> I mean, nowadays it's different, but in those days, you know, it's like, if, well, if he doesn't press the button, then this never existed almost, you know, it was like, that was my beginning. And it was always as a fan really at first, you know, it was like uh, somebody who's absolutely fascinated to understand, like, how did this happen? So that was really how it started. So what, did you just start going to like hip hop gigs and ciphers and stuff, first of all, or did you approach a particular label or an artist and start working with them? I started going to clubs and fairly quickly, um, somebody had told me about the Watts Prophets, who were kind of like a proto hip hop group, like the Last Poets, I guess, but the West Coast equivalent of the Last Poets. I mean, they're different. And then somebody hipped me to the first Freestyle Fellowship album, which is called To Whom It May Concern. And within a month, I was like, oh, that's, that's the story, really. That's what's going on here. I've always been driven by this idea that, you know, at, at the edge of a lot of scenes, there's people that are pushing the envelope. And that I should do my utmost to sort of support and be in touch with that, you know, be in touch with them. And equipped with a decent set of ears, I've been pretty lucky, you know, like I've caught things fairly fast. And that's always part of it for me. You know, it's like, a, I don't know, once everybody knows about it, it doesn't seem as interesting <laughs> somehow, you know. And it's that kind of Walter Benjamin thing. It's those like details at the edges. It's always been more of interest to me than the kind of now let me get the snoop dog photo like it's like now nah, my photos of snoop are from very very early um not that i wouldn't have fun to shoot them now i would but as far as the larger project it seemed more interesting to catch people right as they you know right as they're about to go or just before they go you know yeah so with your work it's like the details in the edges but also um the gaps in between i watched a talk that you did at a photo festival in dublin oh yeah offset Offset, that's it. Yeah. But you were showing some of your work from LA of the gaps in between buildings. Yeah. And looking at your overall career and images that you've made and the films that you've made and everything. It's almost like in some ways that was a kind of like abstract to the rest of your work. Yeah, I mean I'm I'm interested in those kind of in-between places, not just as sort of sites, which I think in that series that I did in the San Fernando Valley when I first came here, which is what you're talking about, was really about me trying to understand where can I speak from? <laughs> because, well, I didn't feel like I had very much to contribute particularly really to American culture. I mean, it was very new and, but yet I'm forced with the situation of having to make photographs to, to do with getting through grad school or whatnot. But it's funny because, yeah, I mean, as I move forward, I'm interested in those places in between, those slightly uncomfortable places in between as sites to make connections, you know, as, as sites to connect, you know, drummers in their, 60s and DJs in their 20s or, you know, Ethiopian musicians and orchestras in strange cities or whatever. Or, you know, even in, literally in terms of ghost notes as those kinds of drum beats that aren't really played, that are there without agency, that are there between the actual beats. I mean, to me, seems a perfectly good place to understand photography somehow. Do we actually remember the moment that we heard the sound of the shutter? Mm. And even when we heard the sound, the thing has already happened. It's this weird sort of in-between ephemeral moments that somehow then come to stand in for larger stories, larger events, you know. Also, I think as a way of understanding history, those moments in between are often neglected and, 
and very often are the places where the most interesting stuff happens, um, as opposed to the sort of, you know, on the aircraft carrier, waving to everybody, the victory salute. Like, <laughs> I'm more interested in the in-between moments where the, the teleprompter fails or the <laughs> an actual different kind of truth emerges, you know. It's difficult, this work. You know, people are used to more iconic photographs, especially in music, you know, it's like that moment, that Iggy Pop moment or that whoever it is moment, that iconic, super iconic moment. And yeah, that's never been something that I was super interested in. I was always more interested in sort of more mundane, ambiguous kind of moments. It's a good observation. It's a very refreshing approach that you have, I think. I love the way you bridge gaps. And to call you a music photographer is almost like it's not enough. You're kind of like an interventionist as well, you know? Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. But I think since the beginning, to be honest, like hip hop's always been this kind of culture where it was never enough to just be a fan. I mean, there's always like, nah, you got to bring something to the table, whether it's you can dance or whether it's you know about records or you really can recite lyrics or, you know, whatever it is, you're good at graffiti, whatever it is, you got to bring something to the table to be a proud, you know, it's not, it's not just good enough to be like, yeah, I support that with my money if we even had money, but it's always been those kinds of things where it's like, well, figure out what you can do to contribute and contribute. And so the notion of making interventions for me, it's always about like, why is nobody telling this story? You know? And then sort of being like, well, if the magazines don't want it, that's not a reason to not do it. It's just a reason that they won't publish it. I mean, what was interesting about hip hop in that era, like that in the nineties was that we were kind of making up our own rules. You know, there was no real, what it's supposed to be that kind of emerged emerge out of a collective unconsciousness really around the culture it didn't emerge out of like somebody being like yeah this is what we got to do is that wasn't you know there were certainly people that drove the discussion especially those interested in commercial pursuits but you know the rest of us were more interested in like what are really are the implications for like let's say history telling that emerged from sampling do you know what I mean? Like, what does it mean that DJ Premier samples a young Holt Unlimited record that's been completely forgotten and nobody cares about and that you can find for 99 cents? And then he's made like the hottest song right now out of that record. And trying to understand like, how, what does that mean for photography or what does that mean for culture in general or whatever and thinking about those kinds of things. And that was, I mean, as weird and oddball as it probably sounded at the time, it seems like... That was probably an important thing to be thinking about. But that's what we were thinking about, was those kinds of, you know, what's the equivalent of a premiere beat with a camera? Yeah, living in that space between music and photography was always kind of of interest. As soon as I realized that it was a thing, you know, that you could actually do it and you could actually live from it or whatever, you know. Fucking head off Vietnam vets come back Looking like one-armed pets Nixon back 
living in between music and photography thing and then move forward to ghost notes which you sequenced like using music as the model of sequencing rather than kind of traditional sequencing that's based on chronology or or typology what was the process or how long did it take you to put that book sequence together and did you do it whilst listening to music yeah of course no of course the hardest part was to get everything into the computer you know to scan everything because it was all analog, it's all analog. And it was something I'd been neglecting for a long time. I don't say neglecting, but like I'd been more concentrating on, you know, capturing material as opposed to thinking about it. But I had, you know, the first time I did a show that was called Ghost Notes, I think it was 1998 or 99. So that was the first time that the idea of like that kind of a grouping of photographs. And it's funny because (laughs) <laughs> these guys from Fat Beats in Amsterdam, I think, interviewed me around then. And I was talking about it like it was a book. Of course, it took like 17 years for the book to, to come out, you know. But it wasn't like that's all I was doing, you know what I mean? Because then we started making films. I mean, the space changed. The internet came. And then films became more like what people were looking for. So it sat for a long time. And then um, around 2010 or 11... I needed to make some changes uh, in my life. And and I had been very lucky to work with Banksy on Exit Through the Gift Shop. I was friends with him from very early. And so I had this painting and I was just like, you know, my dad kept telling me that like somebody was going to steal it out of my house. <laughs> and he would sell it, just sell it. <laughs> How much more money is it going to be worth? Of course, a lot more. So I sold it and I bought a scanner. And that's when it started really. And it took maybe two years of scanning um, to get enough material in there to where I could start really playing with it. The edit, the first edit took about a year. It was like 400 images, I think. And then another kind of year of trying to find somebody to publish it. And then eventually getting contacted out of the blue by uh, University of Texas Press. And they were like, you know, you should do a book. I was like, well, I have a book ready to go. And so I sent David Hamrick the PDF and um, he came back like a week later and said, you know, a normal photo book is around 85 images. You have 400. If you could get it down to under 250, we'll publish it. I mean, I did it in a weekend (laughs) because by then I knew the material, you know, I mean, that's the thing really. I mean, it's the same with films really. It's how well you know your footage is how good of a crack you're going to get at editing it, you know, and I don't think it's perfect. I mean, it's a provisional, it's got a, not a full stop, but a semicolon at the end of it. But there are moments in ghost notes that I'm very proud of. I'm very proud that I've managed to pull that off or whatever. Another thing that happened, I mean, funnily enough, I was stuck about an ending. I don't know, I was never happy with the way it ended. And then To Pimp a Butterfly came out by Kendrick. And just because so many people that were already in the book 
were on that record. And just because that record somehow traced a path back to the early days of me shooting in LA and then ended up with like the Kamasis and the Thundercats and the Terrace Martins. It somehow Kendrick gave me a way to finish the book. I, I just was super inspired. I mean, that's my favorite hip hop record the last 10 years, I would say. And it super got me over the hump with ghost notes. So, <laughs> you know, but music in this studio is, uh, we're heavy on the dub and on the jazz. It give you the right amount of space, headspace to go big and dream big and think big. And then it doesn't get in the way if you need to focus. So that's mainly what I would listen to when we were doing ghost notes. A lot of Joe Henderson. as well and for that reason you know the space in between the, the notes totally. and the sounds the space it does. Its own rhythm. no no the silence is music too the sunrise says sunrise seems to be quite a big influence on you actually like come across that quote of his about making mistakes make a mistake do something right <laughs> yeah sunrise is a big one um monk is a big one but sunrise i always felt like sunrise was he's like 50 years ahead of the curve you know i mean he's recording his own music as soon as there's a tape machine available he buys one he's one of the first people to have one as soon as there's a moog available he buys one starts using it and then the concept of uh kind of thinking of a music that's outside the ah just absolutely completely thinking outside the box as opposed to thinking about like music in terms of race or music in terms of class or music in terms of you know bad commerce or or whatever he just completely in a utopian way invented a space for himself that it's not that they didn't struggle they did of course but um he managed to sustain a big band out of the big band era which was very rare i mean even duke ellington didn't manage to keep the band together in the end you know whereas sunra did and just the weird way that you could be that out and that pragmatic somehow at the same time understanding that now nah, it has to be a community we have to live all together this is just the way it is. And it, you can either be part of it or you don't have to be part of it. But just that kind of steadfastness and creativity to me is just like totally inspiring. You know, it's like you could spend weeks just thinking about that. I mean, that's, I've done it. Have you, have you got any examples of any times that you've on Sunra's recommendation that, in which you've made mistakes that have turned out well? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's photography, man. I mean, the, the cover of introducing, you know, is a complete flub. I mean, it's a total flub. Um, <laughs> I love that word. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's like a bum note. You know, when someone hits a bum note, they say it's a flub note. You know, so it's like a flub, right? It's like absolute mistake. Like in the most stupidest way, like where the kind of camera it was, you had to measure with a measuring tape the focal distance. And there was a mix up between me and my assistant where she was talking in meters and I was 
doing feet or she was giving me feet and the lens was in meters and we just totally messed it up, took the photos, had no idea. And then when we get it back, we're like, oh, of course, that's how it should be. (laughs) You know, monks say like, play it once. It looks like a mistake. Play it the second time. You got everybody wondering. Play it the third time and they're like, whoo, how did he do that? <laughs> and, and this is it, you know? And I mean, it's, I mean, photography for real is, is a kind of struggle between those moments and, you know, the kind of moments where something that unexpected happens and, and the moments where you're, you have it preconceived in your mind. And generally, and this is kind of philosophical, I err on the side of the mistake or the glitch or the, you know, I love that. I mean, that's, you know, this makes it interesting, really, you know. I mean, it's the part of the thing of recording to tape, you know, is that it puts people in a different mind space as far as the kind of performance that they give. And because it's finite, you know, there's only so many takes, there's going to be mistakes. And so everybody gets in a different headspace to perform. And then it produces, yeah, these kind of grand mistakes that are like, yeah, wow, that was fucking crazy. <laughs> Who would have thought you could pull that off or whatever, you know? I guess that's the same with film photography versus digital then as well, because obviously with digital, you can see what you've taken and keep trying to get the right image, but you've got less tries with film. For sure. But even with digital, because we're dealing with such infinitesimal pieces of time, you know, instance, that it's all in the edit. You know, you can go back afterwards and it's like, well, actually that's the one they wanted, but that's not the best photo by any stretch. The best photo is this one where his eyes are closed or, you know what I mean? Whatever it is. I mean, the nice thing about something like ghost notes, having the chance to do something like ghost notes is that you get the opportunity to show the ones that you preferred, that you felt like were more true to the, to the moment or whatever, you know? So do you use digital as well as analog? Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, it is, day and age it's impossible and it's opened up a whole lot of possibilities not just in terms of light which i think is really important in terms of the spectrum of the visible you know like digital takes us into a whole other realm in terms of what's visible and where you can make photos and how but also it opens up the possibility for video and sound which didn't exist prior i mean obviously i've taken full advantage of that it's the best of my ability as well you know so it's important it's not an either either for me let's just put it that way you know, a lot of the cats that I work with, I think we feel the same way, you know, like we're just trying to make the most interesting, pristine, amazing things possible. And whatever helps get us there is what's important, you know, take full advantage of everything. Yeah, you won't find me on auto-tune or nothing, but um, <laughs> no, and I don't really do retouch. I kind of steer away from that. I either got it in the camera or I don't got it okay i have a zit or whatever that's fine but like that whole makeover drop you onto a something different background nah, 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 nah. <laughs> it's other people have you got any particular kind of favorite like memories from photo shoots or is there any particular artist that you've had a good rapport with there's a bunch i mean there's a lot of cats that i'm still very close with 20 30 years later you know a lot of the west coast cats obviously are people that are you know consider friends or whatever whether it be like Freestyle Fellowship Cats to Shadow, Black Galicious, all those dudes. Over the last sort of 15 years, I spent a lot of time working with Quantic, obviously. That's been pretty amazing. We've kind of, that's my brother, you know, like we've <laughs> gone to some pretty crazy places over the years and seen some pretty amazing stuff. Him moving to Colombia in, it was like 2006, I think, or 2007, opened a whole new set of doors for me. I'd spent some time in Brazil 
but him moving to Colombia and having an excuse to go to Colombia. And it was always somewhere that I was interested in just from records or whatever. And there's loads of stories. I mean, I don't know. You have to be more specific, I think. When you were recording some musicians at the Carvery and yeah. there's some riots kicking off outside. Yeah, well, it was a funny thing. So these lunatics had this notion that they'd never done a direct-to-disc record. And then Simon, who's a friend of theirs, who works at the Beeb, who's really a sound kind of genius or whatever, he was the interface between the desk and the cutting lathe. And the idea was to run everything live and then to shoot it as a one take of the actual take that would end up on the record. And then we would use the sound from the record on the video. So it all sounds very straightforward until you actually do it. The twist in the story was that there was a ground, a ground cable was loose and there was a buzz in the feed. So they tried everything, man. So it got down to a point of like they asked everybody to turn off their phones. Everybody had to power down their computers. They turned off the Wi-Fi. And then we were in this bubble, basically. I mean, obviously, everybody knew about um, the brother that had been murdered by the police in Tottenham. Um, and we took a lunch break. I remember it was quite late, like three o'clock in the afternoon. We took a lunch break. And I remember we went down to some takeaway spot near the Carvery. And uh, when we were there on TV, there was... You know, like I remember we were looking at the TV and they were like, oh, that's right up the street. But it was just people protesting. So we had some notion that there was something going on. And then we went back in the studio and turned off everything. It took some time. You know, I mean, there were some issues around the form. There were some issues around performances. There was a couple of dodgy cables, you know, all the normal stuff that you would imagine in a kind of studio session like this. I remember being impressed that Alice Russell never blew a take. I think she was the only person out of the whole out of all of us, me included, like I had a battery go down on a take. We had to go back, but we were literally cutting it direct to disc. So every time a take was blown, it was like a $10 disc as well. I remember Frankie was like, each of these costs 10 bucks. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> oh shit. But, um, but, and the bold Alice Russell never missed a take, man. I couldn't believe it. I remember at the end of the day being like, how the fuck did she do that? Anyway, we, we, we got the two songs done. Eventually it's very nice. You can see the videos. They're turn out beautifully i think people complain that there's too much out of focus in the in the videos but they don't understand that i'm like standing there with a manual focus lens in my hand making it happen every time um so then you know like oh wow that's a wrap okay cool and we turn on our computers or whatever i remember opening up the guardian and the front page of the guardian had like a map of london and it just had like fire emojis <laughs> like oh, yeah. And I mean, it's funny because I lived in LA during the riots, um, you know, it wasn't something new or whatever. Like I was like, whoa, that's crazy. But of course we didn't really realize just how immense the whole situation was. So in the video, we, we found some audio uh, from the day and put it at the beginning and the end and it made sense. And it was in some respects, actually, I was very happy to be doing that on that day. And I mean, it was like, it seemed like an appropriate day to mark. You know, a day when, when Londoners were fed up for a minute. And I think, fair enough.
work often seems to link people to place to object you don't seem to have a lot of work in studios you know like more of seem to be more of a kind of on location photographer yeah i mean i do both i mean i put in my hours in studios i put in my hours on tour buses put in my hours in the pit <laughs> for sure but yeah, the stuff where I thrive is either when I have, you know, there's no opportunity at all. You just have to make something there and then, or you have a little bit of opportunity to go walk about with somebody and makes photos. Yeah. I mean, the combination of place and light, I mean, it's the opportunity to improvise. I love all that kind of stuff. It's nice to have a kind of walk and talk. I feel like where it's just you and the person, and then there's a bunch of people following or whatever, but it's an opportunity to kind of fill them out a little bit and see how they look on the street or see how they look in a bush or wherever it is you know so yeah they call it like environmental portraiture but whatever um there's one picture that i really love paul humphrey he's blowing a bubble gum bubble yeah i love that picture because it's got that classic sort of jazz sensibility to it but then he, this big bright pink bubble. bubble was that improvised yeah he just was chewing gum the whole day he was just chewing gum the whole day i think i may have asked him to blow a bubble but Paul Humphrey is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful character. Amazing drummer. Played with everybody from Coltrane, played with a bunch of great musicians and was like a real stable in the studio scene in L.A. When we started Keeping Time, which is the film series, he was really the one that broke the ice. He was really the one that said, like, you want me to play with him? And I really didn't. I mean, I really was too scared to even think of that. I mean, I'm always sort of very respectful of cats like that. You know, I mean, that guy's played on so many huge records. You know, he's just one of these figures that's like, to me, is a super important, legendary, ancestral, veteran figure, you know, um, from Detroit, came up in the early days of Motown, the whole thing. I mean, the thing about those session musicians is that like, yeah, I mean, they can all play incredibly well. They can all sight read incredibly well. They can all come up with something interesting. But for example, somebody like Paul, his personality is so strong. He's going to light up the room. You know, he's going to be another one of those cats that like everybody's like, oh, I want to I want to play with him. And so when he got excited, when he heard the DJs and he was just like, I don't know about all that jigga jigga stuff. But if you want me to play with him, I'll play with him. <laughs> and that's it. You know, they started playing together and the rest is a wrap. You know, I mean, he opened the door somehow. And we were there with cameras and took advantage of it. So, yeah, I like that photograph a lot, too. And the photograph opposite, actually, that was one I was really proud of as well, which is a little boy with a bunch of bubbles. Oh, yeah. Um, the next page after that is uh, the front of King Tubby's house. And somebody's written, like in graffiti on the wall of, of Tubby's house, bubble brain, <laughs> which is just one of those, like, I don't know what that means, but it works really well with my photos right now. So I'll take advantage of it. Yeah, going to Tubby's house for me was like, it was an important day uh, in Kingston for me. I work a lot with Damian Marley. And so they, so his people found me this like elder dread who was part of the scene going back to beat street, going back to the early sixties. And I just was like, okay, so where's King Tubby's house? Okay. Where does Prince Buster, where did Duke, where's Duke's Reed studio? <laughs> and we just went around and made photos and it was wonderful. And I mean, how much music, <laughs> how much music come out of that place? Man. I know it's crazy, isn't it? This little island. This little island with a big heart and a big voice. Yeah. I've not been, but I really would love to go. Ah, uh, you gotta go. You gotta go. I mean, everyone have their own Jamaican experience, but you gotta go. 
I was kind of thinking to myself the other day about how in music there's like often these metaphors between music and religion you know like God is a DJ and all of that kind of thing and Walter Benjamin has talked about how images were originally made for worship like they weren't made for the people they were made for the deities and to get closer to them for sure do you feel like the role of music photographer is partially to kind of create iconography for other people to to follow for sure for sure I mean, there's a number of texts and films that deal with the notion of the the messianic aspect of rock stars, be it Jim Morrison, be it Elvis Presley, be it Kurt Cobain. You know, it's like the that iconic moment, you know, that Pete Townsend moment, that Jimi Hendrix setting the guitar on fire moment, the whatever. And, there, and it is a big part of it. I'm not so sure it's as strong necessarily. I think our religion may have changed now to reality stars or something, you know what I mean? Like in this era. Yeah. Um, but I think in that kind of countercultural moment at the end of the 60s, even you look at the films that are made of the Rolling Stones at the end of the 60s, to me, are really compelling and interesting the way people, you know, the way all the different, like Godard and Robert Frank and the, the Maisels brothers and whatnot, all try to find a way to frame them that it's just the elephant in the room being their iconographic status, you know, I mean, that they're like the most important rock band in the world or whatever. To think that somehow it's possible to talk about music without talking about spiritual stuff might also be a big mistake. Um, I think it's absolutely fundamental part of the role of music is to bring us to these kind of larger communal kinds of experiences, you know, mm. be it in, in the more secular way of what raves do or festivals do to a more, you know, you know, straightforward religious experience like what gospel does or what candomblé or voodoo or santeria music does or those rhythms do it's not a coincidence that you know the fastest that our heart beats is 120 bpm without going into some kind of a crisis and then the slowest that can go is 60 and if you play music faster than 120 you hear it in half time and if you hear music slower than 60 you hear it in double time and it's like our we're wired for certain rhythmic space and that's just physiological and then what it does to us, you know, if you're serious about music, you've had moments where you felt like moderately out of body. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like you didn't feel like you were yourself and there's ways of measuring this. You know, it's, it's easier to measure when we're with others, but there's this displaced ego moment when you dance with somebody where you're following them so tightly and they're following you so tightly that you're no longer in your own head. You start to have this sort of other experience where it's like, well, it's like making love or whatever, you know, you're, you enter a space between. And, you know, this is powerful stuff. And I'm more interested in that side of it, I think. You know I mean? I'm more interested in the side of it that where it collapses the ego or it takes us out of the ego and moves us into another space. But also, of course, it has the potential, as does religion, of creating messianic or godlike figures, people that lead us into other kinds of experiences or new kinds of realms or new kinds of understandings, you know, mm. I'm personally more dubious of this. I think <laughs> um, my old lefty politics probably doesn't help, <laughs> but I am interested in the writer Greg Tate calls it new maroon or autonomous maroon kinds of spaces or experiences. And I think music does do that. Like music does allow us to think in terms that are more like utopian. 
You know, I mean, in terms of organizing people, I think music is a far more successful way of organizing people than politics, for example. And we're not sophisticated enough to realize that. We've denigrated in the way that we've denigrated the role of women, we've denigrated the role of music. You know, it's, it's relegated to the realm of the feminine, which is really silly. You know, it's just bad militaristic thinking. And if you want to kind of extend that, you know, look at the difference between military music and let's say free jazz. They represent opposite ends of a spectrum that is the human experience and is how we organize ourselves. And I'm much more, put me down with Don Cherry and Arnett Coleman, I'm all good all day. I'm trying to be marching in lockstep with nobody. <laughs> it's just not where my mind is. It's not where I think we should be. If it's not obvious in Ghost Notes that there is, I mean, in the text there is to some degree, I do talk about this stuff. You know, I had this experience like where before he died, Dilla was working on a record that came out on BBE. And there's a song on there called, I think it's called Jungle Love. And uh, I was spending a lot of time around then with Will in Colombia. I was starting to go to Colombia for the first time. And we were finding all these rhythms and, you know, from the northeast of Colombia. And there was one rhythm particularly that was called Mapale. And I was particularly interested in there was this one song that was really compelling. and. Um, I don't know how he did it. I don't know where his influence came from, but that song, Jungle Love, it sounds like it could have been made in the northeast of Colombia. And he programmed it. It wasn't like something he sampled. So for me, in my mind, I was just like, wow, that's crazy. How did he, where did that come from? There's ways that we access knowledge and there's ways that we embody certain kinds of knowledge that isn't explained rationally by like, oh, and then he read the book and then he met that guy. And, and he just, no, that's where we got to get to. Like, that's where to be attuned to that kind of knowledge is, is something to aspire to, really. I think that's what we need. We require this from our historians. We should require this from our scientists. We should require this from our politicians or leaders or whatever. Is that level of sensitivity. And if you don't have it, you're not qualified. You get to sit down because that's how it would have been. You know, there's a, a kind of beyond rational history level to those kinds of stories that that's what I'm interested in. I, I don't know how you can really, I guess I allude to those things and the way things are edited. I do try to anyway, but yeah, that's a very long-winded answer. But it's a good question. <laughs> it's an amazing thing, really, to think about. Thank you. Some of your pictures do have this kind of like 
I don't really want to say ethereal because that word gets, you know, chucked around. It's thrown around a lot. Still manages to be rooted in the real and the everyday, but with this otherness to it, I would say it comes through in that way. Thank you. How do you think photographers and artists develop a visual style or how did you do it? Was it conscious? No, I think if it's conscious, it's the old Johnny Cash thing, right? It's like, it's a product of your inadequacies more than it is a product of your you know, something that is coming from inside. But I think this is really about the 10,000 hours thing and learning to trust yourself, basically. Because I think mostly when you start out, you're kind of giving yourself permission. You know, it's like, oh, that looks like a photograph that could have been made by photographer X that I admire. Therefore, I'm getting somewhere. And then, you you know, you're just generating material and you're kind of unable to determine like what's actually good and what is just looks like something somebody else would have made therefore you're giving yourself permission to do it it wasn't really i mean it's probably like 1997 or 98 until somebody said to me like the people in your photographs look quite solitary and melancholy have you ever noticed that and i really had it but i knew that there were things that there were certain gestures and feelings that i was going for when i would make images more in the editing, to be honest. In the performance, like, I'm quite shy. So I get, like, I go into this, become this whole other person. But in the editing, there were certain kinds of gestures that I felt like, yeah, that's the right vibe for what I'm looking for. It wasn't like front part of your brain, kind of like I wrote a list of words. or It wasn't nothing like that at all. And just over time, then it kind of emerges this kind of like that the photos start to have their own vibe, their own palette. You know, there are certain kinds of light that I'm continuously attracted to. And it's weird because some photographers... Like, I know Joseph Kadelka spent all this time talking about how his whole life is about not repeating ever. Mm. <laughs> it's just like, you'll never be a music photographer, that's for sure. <laughs> you know, like, we're all in our own way kind of looking for things. The problem is where you try to short circuit the process. I don't think it's something that can be short circuited. I, I really don't. I think I've seen people short circuit it and it kind of runs out of steam. Like anything... Um, the ability to make images, the ability to see images, the ability to think about like things in sequence, all that sort of stuff needs to be nurtured. You know, it's not, it's not like you can go away and expect to come back a year later and everything is, you, all your facilities are there. It's, it's not, you have to practice much the way musicians do, you know. And if I'm out of practice, if I haven't been practicing, it takes a minute to come back and you have to feed yourself. And I don't mean feed yourself literally. I mean, obviously you have to do that too, but I mean, feed yourself in terms of like, go out there and explore and shoot things for no reason and look at books for no reason other than to just feed this in yourself, you know? Yeah, you have to kind of live and breathe it, you know, Mm. for extended periods to really get good, I think. Certainly think that sort of looking and reading really helps with drive and motivation. Do you find that as well? Like, Big time. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sad I can't, I can't show you my studio, but yeah, I mean, I've clearly needed a lot of help. (laughs) There's a lot of books and records and DVDs. To be honest, it's like they've been waiting for a moment like this, you know, to be honest. Like, I feel like, shit, I have tons of stuff on this already. I'm always feeding it, you know. Mm. That's the the thing for me. And it's part of the fun of it, actually, is that too, you know, like I'm I'm pretty dedicated. You know, I'm not not off kind of watching shit TV or whatever. You know, I mean, I don't do that kind of stuff. I don't go watch blockbuster movies. I don't listen to pop records. I'm happy to live in my world and my shit and feed myself with that shit and go deeper and deeper and deeper you know totally relate to that like when you get in that flow of taking stuff in and it's really enjoyable and then you go off on all of these amazing tangents 
Totally. I was reading yesterday, reading this book, African Jamaican Music, Dance, Religion. I've had the book for a long time about it in Jamaica. And I'm reading this thing and it's talking about how a lot of people in the formational generation of Rasta, they call them Howellites because Leonard Howell was the first Rasta. And that the Howellites used to read books. And then the guy who was a made field recordings, I have one of his records upstairs, said that curiously, a lot of the books that they're reading are published by this publisher in Chicago called D. Lawrence. D. Lawrence. Well, what's crazy about that is, is that Chicago in, at that time, which would have been like, say, the 30s to the 50s, is, you know, it's ground zero for American alternate religions amongst black folks. And another person who's reading all these books and figuring shit out at that time is... Sunra. So <laughs> I had this moment yesterday where I'm like, there's a relationship between Rastas and Sunra, you know, <laughs> and there is, you know, I mean, there really is. So yeah, that's enough to make my day. Like I go off and feel good that I've figured out something or whatever, figured out a new piece of information to talk about. It's nice when you find like actual evidence. It's not that you couldn't feel there's a relationship between Rasta and Sun Ra, but to actually find evidence of it is a whole other thing. I can tell that would be really rewarding for you, like as someone that likes to make connections between things. Pictures that can sit together justifiably. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to ask you about specific images. The picture of the baby doll in the middle of the road. What's the story behind that one? So um, I'm a big fan of LP. Uh, run the jewels so old friend as well and uh he he had done a company the company flow record at that time and it was quite a success and raucous gave him the chance to or at least he pitched the idea of doing a uh, an instrumental record and it's quite an interesting record actually historically in the sense that it's really i think the first record about childhood trauma firsthand it's the first hip-hop record about that and I mean, especially when you consider that, like, you know, after that, you know, there's a kind of emo hip hop moment that happened in the early 2000s where that trope becomes more prominent or whatever. This is from the late 90s. Anyway, so we kind of had this long discussion about, like, how can we figure out a way to tie the, the story of what allowed him to make the music to the music, but without doing something like staging him as a child being abused or something. So he asked me, can you find a doll? You know, can you find a doll that can carry that kind of a narrative? You know, that could feel like there's darkness. So anyway, yeah, in a prop house in New York, man, we found the doll and uh, called him Little Johnny because that's the name of the record. And Elle fell in love with him, actually. You know, I was like, he's perfect. And then on the day, he was like, I don't know, it needs something else. And and we were drinking 40s. I mean, that's that's how long ago it was. We were drinking 40s. We'd love to know the last time LP drank a 40, but we took the bag and we put two holes in it and we put it over the little, little Johnny's head. And he was like, yeah, that's it. That's little Johnny. And we went to an abandoned mental hospital in New Jersey, which was actually really fucking scary. And we staged this narrative where little Johnny's been kept in an institution and he's escaped or he's escaping. And so we did things like we went around that abandoned mental hospital and we put little Johnny in, in bed and we, we, we had him climbing down a drain pipe, like a, a photo novella or whatever, like we staged a story. And that photo, that frame was the cover of the record. And it's really one of my favorites where it's just like, he's properly made off, but he's murdered the band, the bandered like lying dead behind him on the road. So little Johnny ended up with LP. He was supposed to return him. 
I get a call from the prop house like six months later, like, you guys have a huge bill here. What the hell's going on? Where's our doll? I call LP. He's like, man, Johnny doesn't want to go back, man. I was like, all right, let me just talk to him and see if we can work out a deal to buy it. So we bought the doll. And then he had it for like years. It was in his window in Brooklyn. Sometimes I would walk by in Brooklyn and see little Johnny in the window and be like, you know. And then he did a tour then and he brought Johnny on the tour. And the last date was in LA and he wanted to do a cover for the follow-up record, which was called Little Johnny in the Suburbs or something. So he brought the doll here and we did the same thing here around my house where we, you know, it was Little Johnny's made it from the mental hospital to the suburbs. And then Johnny lived here. He, he was like, Johnny wants to stay here. <laughs> so Johnny lived here then until, wow, like maybe three or four years ago. I brought little Johnny to uh, to a Run the Jewels show and uh, in San Diego and uh, and gave him back to his dad and it was pretty cool <laughs> except for one thing and I'm you're gonna laugh except for one thing which is that one of little Johnny's shoes <laughs> didn't make it. <laughs> Hang on, let me take take a photo. Hang on, uh, little Johnny's shoe right there. I gotta get this back to LP. <laughs> That's great. It's like a little yeah. boat shoe. Yeah. Yeah, it's really like a 50s doll, you know, or a 60s doll. But uh, yeah, the little shoe is amazing. I mean, it's the detail in it is amazing. But the doll was amazing. It wasn't a cheap doll at all. I mean, this was a really serious doll. So, but you have this quite sad look on his face and that worked perfectly for LP. LP is fucking amazing, man. Really, really fucking talented cat. That's my dude right there. I like that guy. image that I really love that really jumped out at me the records burning in the desert I mean considering that sort of vinyl and records and record shops are such a trope in your your work yeah it's quite a statement in that era I worked a lot with a designer called Brent Rollins and Brent's really good at a it was really a great collagist and so we were working on this Black Alicious record and when the record came out he had done this collage on the inside from sort of archival material of a kid sitting there with a bunch of records and reel to reel and a, you know, like a drum machine and some crates and stuff. And so when it came time to do the next record, he was like, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we could do something where we restage that collage, but like for real, but like somewhere you would never expect, you know, I, I, I knew there was dunes, you know, there was sand dunes, like Sahara desert style sand dunes. 
um, not far from here. And I, I suggested that to him. What if we took it all out to the desert? But of course, this is another one of those fucking stories where it's like, yeah, great idea. And then we, <laughs> so what we're going to do is we're going to set up the still life, if you will, of all these records and fucking tape machines and whatever. And then we're going to go back to our motel and we're going to come back right before dawn. And the sand will have blown away all our footprints. It'll be perfect. Well, <laughs> yeah, the sand blew away our footprints, but it also blew away the fucking whole dune. I mean, it's like the ocean in slow motion, really. Dunes. Do you know what I mean? Like, it really does move that much. Because we had took photos, like little digital kind of, you know, to remember exactly what we wanted. And when we come back, we look at it and we're like, that's not it. What the <laughs> fuck happened? And it's, everything's moved. It's like the ocean, you know? And so we scramble to get everything back in place and try to find another way to do it. And we did. We did. And we set it on fire, which was really a wonderful, a wonderful experience. You know, it was called, the record was called Flaming Arrow, I think. Um, and the idea really is this kind of, you know, the way that like culture can be kind of rhizome, I think is the kind of hip term now, but it's like there's a rhizomatic aspect to um, the way culture spreads and like a wildfire or like a flaming arrow, like an arrow shot by indigenous folks that just lands and then starts a fire somewhere else as a way of thinking about culture. And for us then to just riff on that and just come up with this kind of like, I mean, I don't know what it means particularly, you know what I mean? But it seemed to work really well as an image, you know, in a kind of non-language based way. Like that image has a vibe. It's actually blown up really big in our office here in LA. Still to this day, I'm like, how the fuck did we do that shit? <laughs> we actually, we rolled the Jeep. The guy, the art director, like the set director or whatever that was working with us was driving and he was super fucking stressing and he, he actually rolled the Jeep. Like we hit like a bump in the dunes on the way there and fucking Jeep turned over and it was a rental. So we just got out and we just turned it back up the right way and got back in and kept going. It was funny. Wow. Things we do for art. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what is the best reason to do anything? <laughs> yeah, you know? that's so true. How do you perceive your own work in terms of like representation of, say, like hip hop, for example? What's interesting for me is that to think of the work as part of a collective experience, I think I play my own lane and I think I play my own lane pretty good. Like, you know, I don't know that there's many other people that are looking at it the way that I look at it. And I think that's important. And I think that I bring something important to the table. But I think... I also realized that in terms of the general history, if you look at a book like, let's say, like Contact High, you know, um, Vicky Toback put this book together, which is a kind of history of hip hop told from the perspective of contact sheets. I've seen it. It's fantastic, that book. Yeah. And the show is wonderful, too. I mean, she did a wonderful job and she's the perfect person. We're very lucky um, that she's taken as much interest in this as she has and has gone as far with it as she has, because it's really given us a chance to celebrate like a lot of photographers that maybe weren't getting this. I mean, thinking like people like Janet Beckman, for example, mm. Janet Beckman is somebody that I'm really sad to say that I don't say her name enough when it comes to people that influenced me coming up. But like, even before I was aware of that, this could be a job or that this, that there was a whole culture around this kind of like making images like this or whatever. I used to read the face, you know, and her photos of the, Islington twins, they're called. But it was two, like, I mean, you used to call them casuals back in those days, but it was, it was identical twin. I believe they're Caribbean English uh, kids, but dressed in like barber coats and like, you know, dressed like country gentlemen, but waiting for the train in fucking Islington or whatever. 
I mean, those images to me, that was the world I wanted to be a part of. You know, I'm just like, I, I want to be part of that world. That's where, I, you know, I'm fucking in Ireland, miserable 80s, you know, really a difficult time in Ireland or whatever, you know, and I would, I would see Janet's pictures and just be like, <sighs> before I even knew who she was, you know, like, I mean, we're friends now, you know. The nice thing about this is that there's a bunch of folks that do, that do seriously try to photograph the culture and then we all have our own approaches. It's not like everyone's tripping over each other to make the fucking Eminem Messiah photo. We're not, you know, we're all following different threads. Yeah, I can appreciate myself in that realm, definitely. You know what I mean? I'm like, yeah, I feel like I, I play a particular role. I'm definitely part of the crew. Yeah, so that's cool. Brilliant. Thank you so much. It's been really, really interesting. Indeed, likewise. Appreciate it. Thank you to photographer B Plus for sharing his vision of sound. Thank you also to Francis Redmond for the soundtrack and audio magic, to Ian Phillips for the additional audio support, and of course to the Carvery Studio. show please subscribe or leave a review on itunes this will really help other people to find vision of sound and hear from the talented artists we talk to 